Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, well, thanks for joining us today. Um, Today I'm going to talk to Jessica Williams, a City Hall reporter here at The Advocate, about the recent news uh, from LaToya Cantrell. She's going to shut off 20 of the city's uh, traffic cameras. Uh, next, I'll be talking with Jeff Adelson, another City Hall reporter, about plans to rein in the city's short-term rental industry. And last, food writer Ian McNulty will come by to talk about Zach Streif's new career as a Saints play-by-play announcer. Um, joining me first is Jessica Williams. Jessica, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Gordon. So, uh, Jessica, this uh, plan to get rid of traffic cameras was, it might have even been LaToya Cantrell's signature issue as a candidate. Would you say that's fair? Uh, Certainly one of them. You know, it was wildly popular, the idea of pulling all of the traffic cameras down. Um, However, early on, you know, she seemed to be on the fence about whether she would go ahead with that plan. That is what she initially announced, and then she kind of backed off a little bit and came back to it. Um, and ultimately got to the proposal we see now. And so, as I recall, it kind of started off with, let's get rid of all of the cameras. And then it was, well, I didn't quite mean that. And then and what she ended up settling on, I guess, the, the plan announced, the plan that she carried out last week, I guess she had announced this sometime earlier, was to get rid of 20 of the 31 cameras that are not in school zones. Is that right? Yes, it was 20 of the 31 cameras that are not in school zones. And then for the traffic cameras that are in school zones, and this is a fact that not a lot of people knew, rather than having those cameras operate all day, even when school zones aren't in session or the the time limits aren't in session and snapping drivers when they go over the regular speed limit, they would now only operate in school zones. So they'll see a little bit reduced revenue um, only operating from the hours of seven to nine and 2.45 to 4.45. And one of the things I was struck by in this story was that it sounds like a big cutback of cameras, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, it looks like the city's not going to actually lose that much of the money they were getting. I think it was the numbers are something like they're going to lose four million out of what was it out of twenty nine million that they were getting. Right, it would go down to about twenty five million uh, for this year, so that's a four billion dollar uh, loss. And you know she's turning off twenty of the thirty one, um, or she's leaving up. Uh, 20 out of the 31 taken down uh, 11 there, but the 11 that she's taken down are often the city's uh, least revenue generating. Uh, so she's leaving up a lot of the uh, lucrative cameras, um, the ones that you know we're all familiar with over on Carrollton and Earhart, um, over on Henry Clay and Coliseum, mm-hmm. um, because those are the ones where she said, you know, we really need to make sure that people are following the laws and it's really a matter of public safety, right. but also as a matter of a little bit of money. Um, as we can see from the looking at the <laughs> the analysis on how much tickets these things were generating. Right. I mean, in a way, this is kind of a clever um, uh, she's having it a little bit both ways where she's able to say I, I've uh, kept a promise, but uh, but also I'm not going to lose the money. And then there there are further plans, I believe, to uh, to put some cameras back in play. Right. And in, in school zones. Is that right? Yeah, there are further plans to of the cameras that she has uh, taken down. Uh, she is considering putting them back in school zones where cameras currently don't exist. Now, that would bring back some of the revenue that she's, she's the city's initially going to lose, but it's not going to bring all of it back because the cameras that were operating in school zones before had been running all day 
whereas these would only run between the hours of seven and nine and two right. to four. No, I suspect, and I don't know if we've been able to do this level of analysis, that they get a lot more money during the school hours because, of course, then the speed limit drops pretty dramatically, and that's probably, even though it's only four hours a day, I think that the cameras are operating. Those are probably the four most lucrative hours, I'm guessing. Well, we haven't done a full analysis of every school zone camera, but what we did look at was the top five most lucrative. And of the top five, two of them were located in school zones. Mm -hmm. It was on Canal Street by Christian Brothers School. Uh, those turned out over 100 tickets uh, over the life of the program, 100,000 tickets over the life of the wow. program. I guess the big picture here is uh, these changes may prove popular in some ways, but uh it's not like the city's weaning itself off of this revenue. And this is really, it seems like been sort of baked into the city's budget, this 25 or $30 million that, that we've come to expect these cameras are going to generate each year. Yeah, the city for this year, um, the $4 million that we did lose from the most recent changes, the city was able to plug uh, in that gap using other sources, uh, French market money uh, and other funding that it found. And when I asked the Gilbert Montano, who's the city's chief administrative officer, whether there are plans to take down even more of the cameras in the future. He said it was really too preliminary uh, now to be able to say whether that's going to happen. Um, you know, I know that when they did the study to look at how many they should take down this time around, they analyzed what it would cost to do a gradual approach and ultimately um, ended up with the most recent decision to do 20 of 31, leaving, leaving those up and then school zones uh, in school zone hours for the rest. So, you know, more to come potentially in the future um, from the administration on whether this is gonna hold. Um, I'd certainly like to know in the future whether they're gonna end up taking down more of the cameras or whether we're gonna see more of the cameras coming back on. I guess this also, they'd had some polling, I think, that, that maybe figured into this, which is that the cameras that are not in school zones were, well, the cameras in general are unpopular, but the ones when you ask people, do you support having cameras in school zones, that turned out to be a much more popular idea, according to the UNO quality of life survey, right? Yes, it was widely, widely unpopular to have cameras at all. Um, but when you ask, when you couched it as a matter of children's safety, it seemed that most people, um, I believe three out of every four said that they would support the idea of that. Um, and as when I was talking to Mr. Montano, he said it's pretty hard to make the argument that children, we don't need school zone cameras to make sure that children can cross the street safely <laughs> when you're talking to voters. The question I've always had, and this is impossible to get into a poll question, is it seems like they tend to put the cameras on places that are more likely to get speeders as opposed to to keep children safe, like often they're a couple of blocks from from where the school is, but it's within the quote unquote school zone and it may not be where the kids are loading and unloading from buses, but it may be a place where a dragnet is apt to catch a lot of speeders. But maybe I'm just editorializing here. Um, well, it would be interesting to see, right, when they make these decisions, as they've said that they're they're already going to they've already said that they're going to be looking at high schools. But it would be interesting to see as they decide where these cameras are going to go, whether it's going to be in the immediate vicinity of these high schools, whether you, you'll see one camera two blocks away from a high right. school and another camera right in front of the entrance. It'll be interesting to see exactly not only where the cameras will be placed, but where on the street in front of the schools uh, they will be placed. Yeah, I've, te I've noticed they seem to tend to favor streets like Claiborne and Napoleon, where the speed limit drops from during the school hours drops from 35 to 20, which manages, I think, to capture a lot of drivers. 
All right. Well, uh, we will be watching future developments on this story and others. Um, thanks for uh, stopping by for a minute, Jessica. Thanks for having me. All right. Joining me now is uh, Ian McNulty, the food writer at The Advocate. Uh, thanks for being here, Ian. Uh, pleasure to be here, Gordon. So you had a really interesting story uh, last weekend about Zach Streep, the former offensive lineman, the huge former offensive lineman <laughs> who's now the uh, made a made kind of an abrupt career change to being the play by play guy for the Saints. Yeah, and I should say, you know, usually people follow follow my stories for food articles, uh, but I occasionally cross over into <laughs> the other New Orleans obsession, which is the Saints. Zach Streep was the offensive lineman uh, for the Saints. He was on the team for twelve years, retired after last season, had some injuries. It was clear he was going to retire. Uh, but what he did by going into broadcasting was take a really un- unlikely path. I mean, it's very common to have commentators uh, as former athletes come on as color commentators, analysts, talk show hosts. You know, that's pretty typical in the industry. Much more rare to have that play-by-play. Right. Of, that play-by-play announcer who's really narrating the whole game for people. Uh, it's a different kind of skill, right? And Usually we, it's done by more of a journalist uh, or, a, or, or a guy who's grown up in radio. Sure, yeah. And, and some players, some former players have gone over to do that. Frank Gifford is one that comes to yeah. people's minds really quick. But in that case, and in most of the cases... Uh, you know, they they went over to play by play after doing years of color commentary and kind of burnishing their chops uh, in broadcasting. We couldn't find. Just I was gonna for those who are uninitiated and let's just, just explain what the difference is between color oh, and play by play. Yeah, sure. Color is this. Wow, that was a great play, Gordon. <laughs> you really ran the ball up the gut there. Yeah, that's what you got to do in football. Play by play is. Uh, running back takes the snap, uh, looking for room on the left, looking for room on the right, uh, comes right through the middle, gets a great block. He's off for a five-yard gain. That's just what they needed. Oh, this, the officials are set. They've got some penalty flags down, though. We'll see what this is. You know, so it, it's it's calling the game as it unfolds for radio audiences. And in New Orleans, this particular thing where a lot of people do like to, even when they're watching the game on TV, listen to the radio broadcast out for that local color. True confession. I am one of those. I am one <laughs> yeah. of those Saints fans. And- Many among them. But you see, that's the that's why that's why Stewie's journey has been rare because uh, that's a skill that people usually uh, develop over years and years of broadcasting. Well, Streif uh, coming right out of from being a player to a play by play guy, his path may well be unprecedented. We couldn't find another comparable example of a player going from pro football to the broadcast booth for play-by-play in particular directly the next season. And then as his his uh, partner, Deuce McAllister, also a former player, which is interesting, and he hasn't been at, at it that long. He's the color guy. Yeah, and only two years. As he told you in your story, Deuce McAllister was actually pretty nervous about this. Yeah, you don't get to hear an NFL player, even a former one, talk about being scared too often. <laughs> you know, Deuce can be a pretty intimidating guy when he's in the pads and running at you with a ball, I'm sure. But yeah, he said he was a little worried because because, you know, this was untested waters, you know, like right. a lot of people listening. The only way to sort of learn and develop this stuff is to do it live as it's unfolding. So a really, uh, you know, really high profile trial by fire kind of experience for for this broadcast team, uh, which is one thing that made the story really interesting. I mean, these are two people who were former teammates and now they're covering their old team yeah. for their hometown crowd. Let's have a listen to uh, Zach's first uh, call here. Bortles from the shotgun, looks to his right, front corner of the end zone, and broken up on the play. Excellent play there, Patrick Robinson. 
back from the New Philadelphia Eagles in an excellent knockaway there in the end zone. Will Lutz lines up Taysom Hill, the holder, for a 45-yard field goal. Snap is up, hold is down. That ball looks like it gets tipped, but through the uprights. And the New Orleans Saints answer with a field goal of their own. 7-3 Jags here in Jacksonville. Two back. And we should say that, you know, that was very early sledding, right? That was the first uh, first outing during the preseason for him. So, you know, you see that this is a skill. You know, this isn't as easy as just watching the action on the field and, say, you know, describing it to somebody. I mean, it, it takes a lot to convey that as it's happening live pace of football. Right, and as you said, the the play-by-play guy really has to fill up all the silence. The other guy can wait until he has uh, has something to say. And, and I think, you know, I, I maybe I'm biased. I think Deuce McAllister does a great job, and really his knowledge of football comes through in this. I mean, he always knows when there's a flag thrown, he knows what happened. But the play-by-play guy kind of has to be there, like, talking a lot. And one of the interesting things to watch uh, as this is all developed is the fact that, well, you know, Streif and, and McAllister both are filling some very, very big shoes in the New Orleans market in particular, right? They're taking the place of uh, the late Hokey Gaijan, who unfortunately passed away in 2016 after many, many years of being the color guy for uh, for the radio broadcast. And then Jim Henderson, the legendary Jim Henderson, who was the play-by-play announcer for decades on these Saints games. And that's who Streif right. is trying to take the place of. Yeah. And, you know, it's, like you said, these guys are legends. And maybe we should listen to one of uh, the favorite Henderson call just to give you a sense of that. Mentor for Garrett Hartley, who is about to attempt to kick the Saints into the first Super Bowl in their 43-year history. And, I mean, how ironic was it that this morning in the paper that Garrett Hartley was talking about that, the pressure that's on kickers, the number of field goals that have been missed in the postseason. There have been a lot of them. Saints fans don't want to see another. Snap, placement, kick by Hartley, and it is, it is good! So that's uh, that's a taste of Jim Henderson. Never there. gets old. I can listen to that call <laughs> goosebumps over every again. time, right? Let's hope we hear something similar coming out of Streep's mouth in a few weeks. Yeah, uh, but that would you see? You see that that's what uh, that's what any anybody coming into this job will be up against, and that's one of the interesting points that these guys made when uh, interviewing for the story is that well. You know, anybody trying to replace Jim Henderson, Hokey Gaijan, was going to be up for a pretty unrealistic standard of comparison. Let's face it, New Orleans people grew up listening to this particular broadcast. You know, their hopes hanging on the every word <laughs> in many seasons, quite forlorn hopes that uh, that what he says next might be good news for Saints fans. Anyway, this was the voice of the Saints in many, many yeah. ways. But what uh, what what McAllister and Streif have been bringing to it together in this season is that really interesting look of two former teammates covering their own team with that intimate knowledge of the game and the organization, the club, the fan base. I mean, they're they're not just from anywhere; they're from they are Saints players covering. So they know this team. They know this locker room, they, and they know this game. Obviously, one of the things that I appreciate about about following them and listening to them this season. Uh, has been the way that you do feel like you're in the locker room in a way. You know, yeah. they're talking the way that that players talk. You know, yeah. about each other. And there's a lot of respect for the guys on the field, for the opponents, especially. There's a lot of uh, 
you know, you, you can tell a lot of pride on, in, in, in the team. And, that, boy, they've covered quite a season for their first outing. This yeah. has been a really a really epic season. A lot of ways with broken records, a lot to celebrate. Some of Deuce's records being broken, in fact, <laughs> yeah, which has been an the- interesting <laughs> dynamic, too. Right, what's that happening? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons why this story really came together as an interesting slice of New Orleans life, because it is something that this city is really obsessed with. Yeah. Uh, you know, cuts across all kinds of lines. Everyone's hanging on on what the next play or the next success with the next what the next uh game will bring for the saints and uh you know people who have been tuning into the radio listening to this they get a just a really distinctive voice from some people who are taking a very different path to be there too yeah yeah well uh, we'll see what this year's version of hakeem drops the ball <laughs> is i guess on a few days here uh you know if the season's taught us anything it's that it's gonna be interesting yeah you know, i don't see any any boring games uh, <laughs> ahead and hopefully we'll, we'll get a few of them yeah you know, let's uh, let, let's just hope that we get a few of them. maybe we'll be playing this clip um 20 years from now we'll see <laughs> i hope so all right well thanks for coming by ian appreciate it who that all right. Well, joining me now is Jeff Adelson, the City Hall reporter who's been covering uh, short-term rentals for us for a long time now, among many other topics. Thanks for coming by, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So we're seeing this week, we're expecting a vote on the first real kind of curtailment of short-term rentals that we've seen ever since the city council legitimized short-term rentals a couple of years ago. Is that right? Uh, that's right. This is the first uh, effort to restrict the, uh, the short-term rental, uh, what what can be legally turned into a short-term rental since uh, the council uh, first approved them back in 2016. Okay. And let's start maybe by talking about, tell us what the big picture, how many short-term rentals do we think we have or how many legitimate ones do we have? Um. There's roughly about uh, 3,000 short-term rentals currently licensed in the city. Uh, that's down from about 4,800 uh, roughly a year ago. Uh, in, in large part, that's because one of the first things that this council did when they took office was uh, approve a uh, essentially a moratorium on new licenses, uh, on a specific type of new licenses, which allow for whole homes to be rented okay. in uh, a residential area. Once the moratorium went into effect, you couldn't get new or renewal licenses for these types of whole uh, homes. So you rentals. couldn't get renewals either. Um, okay. So yeah. uh, all of that has uh, sort of been on ice since then. Been on ice since then. Okay. Of course, it's important to point out that that doesn't mean that those same rentals aren't continuing to operate illegally. And um, I think I think there's basically no one that would uh, uh, argue that that's what's going on on any side of the debate. Um, the question is how many of them continue to operate uh, without licenses. Okay. So let's talk about the restriction, the new restrictions that the, these, this new proposal would impose. One is that we would, they, they would no longer would allow rentals, uh, short-term rentals in the garden district, right? There already aren't any in the French quarter. Uh, there aren't any in most areas of the French quarter. This new proposal also does include a ban on rentals in the garden district. Um, Councilman Jay Banks, uh, who represents that district, his office has said this is a way of essentially reinstating what had been a ban on traditional bed and breakfasts in the Garden District. Uh, that ban went away when the short-term rental uh, 
regulations were passed, and they're saying this is just a way to get it back. Now, that's been a somewhat controversial uh, part of this proposal, uh, in part because other neighborhoods say, you know, it's why the is the garden district-, district special? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so along with those, so the real, the most controversial part of this Airbnb slash short term rental issue has been really the whole home rentals, right? And the idea behind this is to crack down mostly on those. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, this uh, the whole home rentals are the ones that would be most directly targeted by uh, this change. What uh, what the current situation is, uh, at least until the city stopped. Uh, giving out licenses was uh, any whole unit in the city could be rented out for at least for 90 days every year under what was called a temporary license. Those are the licenses that have been suspended at the moment. Um, But that meant you could go out, you could buy as many uh, residential properties as you want. And as long as you don't uh, rent them for more than 90 days every year, uh, they could be uh, uh, used as a short-term rental. Now it didn't have to, because 90 days spread over the course of the year covers most weekends and a lot of the year, a lot of the year. Um, that was perfectly fine for most of the people that were looking to do short-term rentals. Um, in addition to that, you have the issue of some of the platform, both of the major platforms, Airbnb and HomeAway, uh, had pro had deficiencies in the way they were reporting data to the city that made it difficult for the city to actually follow up and see if prove someone was in violation. Actually, yeah. And at the most basic level, they weren't sharing data with each other. So you can do 90 days on Airbnb, I 90 see. days on HomeAway, and it'd be difficult for the city to find out. So what this new proposal... Let me was, just interrupt oh, for sorry. a second, Jeff. Um, and just the reason that people uh, especially object to the whole home rentals is these are thought to be ones where they're more apt to be parties and people sort of acting up and as opposed to like when you sort of have, you're renting a room to somebody in your house. There's actually two elements to this. One is the partying aspect. If, uh, you don't have someone living on site when the unit's being rented out. Um, and there are provisions in the current law that allow half doubles to be rented out and things mm-hmm. like that. But those are seen as being a little better monitored. If you're living on the property, maybe you're not going to allow the loud bachelor party to keep people up uh, until three in the morning or whatever. But those have also come under heavy fire by uh, affordable housing advocates because the advocates say, look, these are we're in the middle of an affordable housing crisis. People are unable to uh, live in their own homes or stay in their homes because prices are rising and rents are rising. And at the same time, you have these units that could be being used by New Orleanians instead being rented out to tourists and, and other things. So those have really been the focus of a lot of the, um, both the neighborhood and the, the affordable housing critics of short term rentals. And it looks like from a news release, in fact, just went out this afternoon, but your reporting too shows that there's at least four council members who seem to support this this plan that will be considered Thursday. Right. And I, I don't know if we've actually described what the the uh, the key part of the plan that's, that's coming forward Thursday. Um, that would require a homestead exemption for uh, any, any re- uh, rentals in residential neighborhoods. So that would mean one of one of two things. Uh, you would need a, if you have a, a if you own a fourplex or less um, and you live there, you, uh, you can have a homestead. You can then rent uh, the other three units or uh-huh. however many units you have as short-term rentals. Um, if you don't have, uh, and um, 
so that uh, that requirement, uh, you could also rent out, you know, a room in your home or, or something like that. Um, but that requirement is likely going to severely restrict the number of uh, residential properties that are being used as short-term rentals. Again, there's a lot of people who own multiple properties mm-hmm. that they're renting out uh, without living in them, or even in some cases living in the city or state. Um now, uh, for non-residential properties, areas like the uh, Central Business District, uh-huh. uh, where you've got condominium developments, um, areas like, um, and some to a smaller extent, things like uh, corner former corner stores that are zoned mixed use or parts of Magazine Street yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a sort of complicated set of rules governing them, depending on whether they're small or large or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> one of the key parts that brought that got four votes for this rather than uh, sort of falling short was um, the council has agreed not to take a, not to specifically uh, go forward with a plan that councilwoman Kristen Gisselson Palmer had originally proposed, which was requiring that large scale commercial uh, properties have one unit of affordable housing for every unit of uh, short-term rental that they had. Instead, they're going to let the city planning commission come up with a plan, figure out what the best way to encourage affordable housing within these commercial developments is. Um, And then uh, there's a few other elements. Uh, Some of these large-scale properties are going to have to actually operate like hotels. They're going to have to have a front desk. They're going to have to have security and cameras and you know, all sorts of other uh, plans that are already in the law for hotels, sort of acknowledging that short-term renting and, you know, a Hilton are not really all that different. I see. So some of that stuff is going to come later, though, some of the stuff with the affordable housing. The the affordable housing is going to come later. This is going to be a a four-month process before this Mm -hmm. whole thing gets finalized. Tomorrow's vote is really just the beginning of this. Um, And and it's not clear where uh, what the final version is going to look like. Um, I talked to a couple of affordable housing advocates today, and they're – they're saying they, they uh, or at least one uh, who, who's been one of the most vociferous opponents of, of short-term rentals uh, said that she's going to be encouraging people to come out and absolutely vote in favor, uh, encourage the council to vote in favor of this, largely with the due to the uh, the homestead exemption requirement. Uh-huh. Um, she says she has some concerns about the um, having the city planning commission uh, hash out the requirements for affordable housing but that's just because we don't know at this point what the what that's going to look what like. they're going to come up with so and last thing i wanted to cover big picture i guess the people who have been critics of of the short-term rental situation generally support this although maybe some of them think it doesn't go far enough but they think it's a step in the right direction and then you have sort of the other side the airbnb itself is putting out some ads against this and some some of the people who make money from the current setup are saying this is going to deprive mm-hmm. them of that ability is that more or less where things stand uh that, that's pretty much where things stand um the the short-term rental platforms the airbnb home away um are are unlikely to agree to anything that has something similar to the structure that the council's considering at the moment. Uh, the homestead exemption requirement is pretty much a uh, deal killer for them. Um, they've been getting, uh, they've been running ads. Uh, they've been 
uh, doing a social media campaign, and they've been having a lot of uh, residents show up at these meetings who say, look, I'm renting out this property, but it's letting me stay in this other property right. uh, with my family, or this is my livelihood. Um, so it's um, it, it's expected to be a pretty lively debate on Thursday between these two sides. But we think there are four council members ready to vote for uh, it. At this point, uh, the the current version of the measure has uh, support has four co-sponsors. It has support from a majority of the council. Uh, this would be a rare case where we may see a um, split vote on the council. Uh-huh. They've tried very hard this whole term to be unanimous, be unanimous on uh-huh. pretty much everything they do. But um, Palmer's office and uh, several of the other offices have said, even if they're not going to get a unanimous vote. They're going to take this vote on Thursday. They think they can, they all say, the four offices say they're ready to pass this. And um, again, that'll kick off a process that'll include three more votes, one by the city planning commission and two more by the the city council. Things can change uh, at any of those votes. Okay. Um, but uh, this certainly is a, um, very definitive statement on where the council thinks uh, or where a majority of the council thinks these regulations should go moving forward. All right. Well, uh, we'll be watching Thursday and thanks for, uh, thanks for helping us understand it, Jeff. Thank you. All right. The neutral ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.